Welcome to My Favorite Theorem, a math podcast. I'm Kevin Knudsen, professor of mathematics at the University of Florida, and here is your other host. Hi, I'm Evelyn Lamb. I'm a freelance math and science writer, uh, usually based in Salt Lake City, but uh, currently still in Providence. Um, I'll be leaving from this semester at ISERM uh, in about a week, so trying to eat the last oysters that remain in the state uh, <laughs> before I leave, and then... Uh, Head back. Okay, so so you actually like oysters? Oh, I love them. So, yeah, they're, they're fantastic. That that is one of those. It's a very binary food, right? You you yeah. either you love them, and I do not like them at all. Oh, I get that. I yeah. I totally get it. Sure. Yeah. They're like in some sense objectively gross, but they I actually love them. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad you've gotten your fill in. in I, I imagine they're a little more difficult to get in Salt Lake City. Yeah, you can, but it it's nothing yeah. that you can get over here. <laughs> <laughs> Might be slightly iffy. You don't know. You don't know how how long they've been out of the water, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. There, there's one place that we eat oysters sometimes there, yeah. but that's the only place. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, today we are pleased to welcome Ben Orlin. Ben, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, yeah. Well. Well. Thanks so much for having me, uh, Kevin and Evelyn. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm Ben Orlin. Uh, I'm a math teacher, uh, and I write books about math. So uh, my first book was called Math with Bad Drawings, uh, and my second one is called Change is the Only Constant. Yeah, and you have a great blog of the same name as your first book, Math with Bad Drawings. Um, and yeah, I'm thank sure... you. And I think our, our blogs are, I think, almost birthday. Not exactly, but we started them like within months of each other, right? Roots of Unity and Math with Bad Drawings. I think oh, both yeah. have their began in like spring of 2013. It was just, yeah. a, just a fertile time for blogs to begin. Yeah, well, and a few years ago, you had some poll of readers of like what other things they read and and stuff and my blog was like considered the most similar to yours or it's some right, metric right. by this yeah thing. yeah i did a reader survey and asked people uh right what what other sources they had mostly i was looking for reading recommendations so what else do they consider similar um and overwhelmingly it was xkcd uh, mm -hmm. not so much more just because xkcd it's it's like if you have a little light that you're holding a little candle you're holding up and you're like what does this remind you of and like a lot of people are going to say the sun because they look up and that's a very big visible light. Um, sure. But I think in terms of actually similar writing, I think I think uh, right, Roots of Unity is not is not so different. I think. Yeah. So I I think I thought that was interesting because I have very few drawings on on mine. Um, although the ones that I do personally create are definitely bad. So I guess <laughs> that similarity too. Right. That's the key thing. Yes, yeah, commit, committing to the low quality. Yeah. Well, but that's just it. I would argue they're actually not bad. Like so, so if I tried to draw like you draw, it would be worse. So, so I guess my my book should just be ma yeah, well, math, I, I math with worse drawing, that, right? right? I mean, um, I you actually get a lot of emotion out of your characters, even though they're they're simple stick figures, right? There's some skill there. Yeah, yeah. So I try I try to draw them with yeah very very expressive faces. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, they're they're definitely still bad drawings, is my feeling. Um, sometimes people say like, "Oh, but they've gotten so much better since you started the blog," which is true. But it, it's one of these things where they could they could get a lot better every five year interval for the next <laughs> fifty years, and still, I think, not not look like professional drawings by the end of it. Mm. Right, you're well. not approaching um, Rembrandt or anything. All right, so we asked you on here uh, because, well, you, you, you have bad drawings, but you also have uh, thoughts about mathematics and, and you communicate it very well through your drawings. So you must have a favorite theorem. What is it? Yeah, so this one is, uh, is drawn from my second book, actually. The second book is about calculus. Um, mm -hmm. And I have to confess, I, I already kind of strayed from the assignment because it's not so much a favorite theorem as a favorite construction. Oh, that's cool. You know, we, 
we get rule breakers on here That's so right. yeah, yeah <laughs> it happens <laughs> Yeah, I guess that's the nature of mathematicians. They like to like to bend the rules and imagine new uh, new premises. Um, so yeah. pretending that this were titled "My Favorite Construction," um, I would uh, I would pick uh, Weierstrass's function. So the you know first introduced in 1872, and the idea is it's this function which is um, continuous everywhere and differentiable nowhere. Yeah. Do you want to describe maybe like what this looks like for anyone who might not have seen it yet? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So when you're picturing a graph, right, you're probably picturing and it, right, I teach uh, secondary school. So so students are usually picturing a fairly small set of possibilities, right? Like you're picturing mm-hmm. a line, maybe you're thinking of a parabola, maybe something with a few more squiggles, maybe as many squiggles as like a sine wave going up and down. Mm-hmm. Um, but they all have a few things in common. One is that almost anything that students are going to picture is is continuous everywhere. So basically, it's made of one unbroken um, line, you can imagine drawing it with your pencil without picking the pencil up. Um, and then the other feature that they have uh, is that they, um, but this one's a little subtler, but there will be almost no points um, that are jagged or sort of crooked or, mm-hmm. you know, if I picture like a, an absolute value graph, right, it sort of is a straight line going down to the origin from the left, and then there's a sharp corner at the origin, and then mm-hmm. it rises away from that sharp corner. And so those kind of sharp corners, you, you may have one or two in a graph a student would draw, um, but that's sort of it, you know, like sharp corners are weird. You don't, you can't draw all sharp corners. It feels like between any two sharp corners on your graph, mm-hmm. there's going to have to be some, some kind of non-sharp stuff connecting it, some kind of smooth bits going between them. Right. Uh, and so what's sort of wild about, uh, about Weierstrass's function is that you look at it and it just looks very jagged, um, like it's got a lot of sharp corners. And you start zooming in, and you see that even between the sharp corners, there are more sharp corners. Uh, and you keep zooming in, and there's just sharp corners all the way down. It's it's sort of what we would today call a <laughs> fractal, um, although back then that word wasn't you know wasn't around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just it's the entire thing. Every single point along this curve is, in some sense, a sharp corner. Yeah, it kind of like looks like an absolute value everywhere. Uh, yeah, like, yeah, exactly. It has yeah. that has that cusp at, at every single point you would look at. Right. So very pathological in nature. And, uh, you know, I'm sure I've seen the construction of this. Is it easy to say what the construction is or is this going to be too technical for an audio format? It's actually it's actually not hard to construct. There, there, yep. So there are lots of there's whole families of functions that have the same um, sure. the same property. Mm-hmm. Um, but Weierstrass is pretty simple. He starts with um, basically just a cosine curve. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you sort of have cosine of, of pi x. So pictures, you know, a, a cosine wave that has mm-hmm. a period of two. Um, and then you do another one that has a much uh, shorter period. So you, you can sort of pick different numbers. But let's say the next one that you add on mm-hmm. is has a period that's 21 times faster. So okay. it's, it's sort of going up and down much quicker. And it's shorter, though. We've shrunk the amplitude also. So mm-hmm. it's only about a third, let's say, mm-hmm. um, as tall. And so you add that on to your first function. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now we've got, you know, we started with just a nice gentle wave, and now we've got a wave that has lots of little waves kind of coming off of it. Sure. Um, and then you keep repeating that process. So the next, you know, the right. second one in the iteration had a uh, had a period of, or had 21 cycles mm-hmm. per, per two units. The next one has 21 squared cycles mm-hmm. and is one-ninth the height of the original. Okay. Um, and then after that, you're going to do, you know, 21 cubed cycles in the same span and then 21 to the fourth cycles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it goes, um, I don't know if you can hear my, my daughter is, uh, is crying in the background. Um, cause I think, <laughs> well, you know, she, she finds it sort of upsetting to imagine a function that's, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that has this kind of weird property, especially yeah, cause it's fair. such a simple construction. Um, <laughs> right. It's just, it's just like little building blocks for her that we're putting together. Um, and one of the things I like about the construction is that at no step 
do you have any non-differentiable points, actually? Mm-hmm. Right? It's, it's a wave with a little wave on top of it, and then with lots of little waves on top of that, mm-hmm. and then tons and tons of little waves on top of that. But these are all smooth, nice curving waves. Um, and then it's only in the limit, sort of at the, at the end of that infinite bridge, uh, that suddenly it goes from all these little waves to it's differentiable nowhere. I mean, I could see why that would be true, right? Uh, yeah, right, right. It feels, it feels like it's getting worse, yeah. Yeah, yeah right. and, and you can do this, right. Weierstrass's function is really a whole family of functions. So he mm-hmm. came up with some conditions. It's sort of you just need, but basically that, that's, the, that's the basic idea. You need to pick an odd number for the number of cycles and, and then a geometric series for, uh, for the amplitude. Mm-hmm. So, so what's so appealing about this to you? It's just like you can't, you can't draw it well, like you have to draw it badly? Yeah, right. So that's one thing, right? Exactly. Yeah, try to push people into my corner, right? Force them to have to draw badly. Um, I, I, I do like that. This is something, right? Functions, graphs of functions are so concrete, and yet this one you really can't draw. I've got a, in my book. I have a, a picture of the first few iterations, mm-hmm. and already you can't tell the difference between the third step and the fourth step. Mm-hmm, so I had sure. to, I had to, you know, do a little box and like an inset picture and say, actually, in this fourth step, what looks like one little wave is really made up of twenty-one smaller waves. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I, I do sort of like that, the kind of how quickly we get into something kind of unimaginable and strange. Um, and also, you know, I'm, I'm not a historian of mathematics, and so I always wind up feeling like I'm peddling sort of fairy tales about, about mathematical history more than kind of the complicated truth that is history. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the, the kind of the role that this function played uh, in, in going from a world where it felt like functions were kind of nice and were something we had a handle on uh, into opening up this world where it's like, oh no, there are all these pathological things going on out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are, there are just these monsters that lurk, uh, in the world of possibility. Yeah. Right. And, uh, was this, it, do you know, um, was this maybe the, one of the first or, or the first step towards realizing that in some measure sense, like all functions are completely pathological or, yeah. Yeah. Do, do you know kind of where it fell there or, or like what the purpose was of creating it in the first place yeah i think no I, th- I think that's exactly right I, d- I don't know the sort of ins and outs of that story um i do know that right if you look in spaces of functions that they sort of all have this probably right it, among continuous functions it's actually you know i think it's only a set of measure zero that doesn't have this property um right. so sort of as i guess the right the sort of basic narrative as i understand it leading from kind of the start of the 19th century to maybe sort of the end of the 19th century um, is basically thinking that we can mostly assume things are good to realizing that sometimes things are bad, like this function, um, culminating in the realization that actually basically everything is bad and the good stuff is just these rare these rare diamonds. Yeah, I guess maybe the slight, like, I don't know, silver lining is that often we can approximate with good things instead. I don't know if that's like the next step on the evolution or something. Right. Yeah. I guess that, right. Certainly, that's a nice way to salvage some like a silver lining, salvage a, a happy message. Because um, it's true, right? You know, if, even though say you have know, say to the simpler example, like the rationals are only a set of measure zero in the reals. You know, they're everywhere. You know, they're dense. Mm-hmm. So at least you know if you have some weird number, you can at least approximate it with a rational. Yeah, I was just thinking when you were saying this how. Uh, it, it has a really nice analogy to the rationals and and even algebraic numbers and stuff like, okay, start naming numbers. You're probably going to name whole numbers, which are, you know, this sparse set of measure right. zero and like, oh, be more creative. Like, okay, well, I'll name some fractions and some square roots and stuff, but you're still just naming measure sets of measure zero. You're like never naming some weird transcendental function that I can't 
figure out a compute a, a way to compute it. Yeah, it is. It is funny, right? Because in some sense, right? Like we we have we've imagined these things called numbers or these things called functions, um, and then you ask us to pick examples, and we pick the sort of most unlikely, nicest, hand-picked, cherry-picked examples. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the, like, the actual stuff, we've imagined this category called functions, and most of what's in that category that like we, we developed, we, we came up with that definition, most of what's in there is stuff that's much too weird for us to begin to picture. Yeah. Um, which says something about, I guess, our, our reach exceeding our grasp or something. I don't really know, but they are, <laughs> our, our definitions can really outrun our, our intuition. Yeah. Yeah. So where did you first encounter this function? It's uh, a good question. I feel like probably as a kind of folklore bit in maybe 12th grade math. I feel like I feel like when I was probably first learning calculus, it was sort of whispered about, you know, my teacher sort of mentioned it offhand. Um, and that was a very enticing, and in some sense, that's actually where sort of my whole second book comes from, is all these little bits of folklore, the kind of not exactly the thing you teach in class, but the little... Uh, mm-hmm the yeah i don't know the the thing that gets mentioned offhand and you go wait what 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 was that and you're like oh well don't worry you'll learn about that in your real analysis class in four years it's like no i don't want to learn about that in four years tell tell me about that now i wonder about that weird function um and then and then i think the first proper reading i did was probably in um william dunham's book uh the calculus gallery um which is a nice book going through um sort of different bits of historical mathematics uh beginning with sort of the yeah the beginnings of calculus through um, through like the late 19th century. Um, and he has, he has a nice discussion of the function and, and its construction. So, so uh, when we were preparing for this, you, you also mentioned their connections to Brownian motion here. Do you want to mention those to our audience? Yeah, yeah. I really, right. I, uh, I love that this turns out. It's right. So the, I have some quotes here from like the, right, when this function was sort of debuted, right, when it, when it was introduced to the world, mm-hmm. right, you have Emile Picard, his line was, um, if Newton and Leibniz had thought that continuous functions do not necessarily have a derivative, the differential calculus would never have been invented. Mm. Uh, which I, I like the idea, like, <laughs> if Newton and Leibniz knew what kind of, you, what you were going to do to their legacy, they would never have done this. They would have, they would have rejected the whole premise. Um, and then Charles Herm, Hermite, 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 there yeah. we go, that sounds yeah. better. Yeah. Sounds good. Sure. Um, Right. His, his line was, and I don't know what the context was, but I turn away with fright and horror from this lamentable evil of functions that do not have derivatives, um, which is really layering on that. I, I like the way people spoke in the 19th century. There was yes. a lot more, uh, a lot more flavor to their, to their language. Yeah. Um, right. And right, right. Poincaré also, right. Less, um, he, he was saying a hundred years ago, right. Prior to, to Weierstrass developing it, uh, such a function would have been regarded as an outrage to common sense. Um, anyway, so, so I mentioned all those, right? You, you mentioned Brownian motion, um, right? The, the instinct when you see this function is that this is utterly pathological. This is the math just completely losing touch with, with physical reality and giving us these weird intellectual puzzles and, and strange constructions that can't possibly mean anything mm-hmm. to real human beings. And then it turns out that that's not true at all, that that Brownian motion, right? So you look at, you know, you look at pollen dancing around on, on the surface of some water mm-hmm. um, and it's jumping around in these really crazy, aggressive ways. Um, and it turns out our best models of that process, uh, you know, of any kind of Brownian motions, you know, coal dust in the air or pollen on water, um, our best model to a pretty good approximation uh, has the same property that the path is so jagged and surprising and full of jumps from moment to moment. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's that it's nowhere differentiable, even though the particle obviously sort of has to be continuous. It can't to be discontinuous. I mean, it's jumping like literally, you know, transporting from one place to another. So that's not 
really the right model. Right. Um, but it is it is non-differentiable everywhere, uh, which means weirdly that it doesn't have a speed, right? <laughs> like a derivative is a is a velocity, right? Yeah, so it has that means maybe an average speed, but not. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, even I think it depends how you measure. I, I have to look back at this, but right, because what it means, sort of, between any two moments, according to the model, between any two points in time, is traversing an infinite distance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess right, it could have an average velocity, um, but since the the average speed, I think, will wind up being infinite. Mm. Um, oh. Right. So right. over a given time huh. interval, it could have right. You you can just take how far it traveled that time interval and and divide by time. But I think the speed, right, if you take the absolute value, sort of the, the magnitude, um, I think you sort of wind up with infinite speed, maybe. Hmm. But but really, it's just that you can't, like, speed is no longer a meaningful notion. It's moving right. in such an erratic way mm-hmm. that you can't, um, you can't even talk about speed. Well, because it, that tends to imply a direction, right? I mean, you know, it's, right. really, it's really velocity. I, 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 that always struck me as that's the real problem, is that you can't figure out what direction it's going in because it's effectively moving randomly right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. Yeah. 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 yeah what, the, the only way I can build an intuition about it is to picture a single, right? Imagine like a baseball mm-hmm. um, and having a single non-differentiable moment. So like you toss it up in the air mm-hmm. and usually what would happen is that it would, you know, it goes up in the air, it kind of slows down and slows down, slows down. There's that one moment when it's kind of not moving at all mm-hmm. and then it begins to fall. And and so the non-differentiable version would be like you throw it up in the air, it's traveling up at ten meters per second, and then in a trillionth of a second later, it's traveling down at ten meters per second. Mm-hmm. Right. And like what's happening at that moment? Well, it's, it's just unimaginable. And now for Brownian motion, you've got a picture that that moment is is every moment. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> weird, weird world. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, another thing we like to do on this podcast is ask our guests to pair their well, in your case, construction with something uh what have you what is what does the virus stress function pair with yeah yeah so i think what i have i have two things in mind both of them right constructions of new things that kind of opened up new new possibilities that people could not have imagined before mm-hmm. um so the first one maybe i should have picked a specific dish but i'm picturing basically just molecular gastronomy mm-hmm. right oh, this movement nice. in in cooking where you take um i really like one example i just saw recently in a book was uh, I think it was this WD-50, sort of a famous molecular gastronomy restaurant mm-hmm, in New York, mm-hmm. where they had taken, you sort of, the dish comes to you, and it looks like a small, um, like, poppy seed bagel with locks. Okay. And then as it gets closer, you realize it's not a poppy seed bagel with locks, it's ice cream that looks mm. almost identical to a poppy seed bagel with locks. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of weird enough already. And then you take a taste and you realize that actually it tastes exactly like a poppy seed bagel with locks because they've somehow worked in all the flavors into the ice cream. Hmm. Uh, anyway, so molecular gastronomy basically is about imagining very, very weird possibilities of food mm-hmm. that are outside mm-hmm. our, our usual traditions, uh, much in the way that Weierstrass's function kind of steps outside the the traditional structures of, of math. Yeah, I like this a lot. That's I mean, a good one. Partly because I'm a little bit of a foodie, and like when I lived in Chicago, we went to uh, this restaurant that had this amazing uh like molecular gastronomy thing i'm trying to remember one of the the things we had was this frozen sphere of blue cheese and Mm. it was so weird and good and yeah you get you get like puffs of air that are something there was like a a ham sandwich but it was like the bread was only the crust somehow there's like nothing inside yeah it was 
all these mm. weird things. <laughs> Liquefied olive that was like in inside some little gelatin thing. And so it was just like concentrated olive taste that bursts in your mouth. Mm. So good. That that sounds awesome to me, the, uh, the molecular gastronomy food. I, I have very little experience of it firsthand. Um, so you mentioned a second possible pairing. What would that be? Yeah, so the other one I had in mind is uh, is music. It's the Beatles album Revolver, great album, uh, which I think yeah, kind of m- much like one of my favorite albums, and and much like molecular astronomy shows that like the foods that we're eating are actually just a tiny subset of the possible foods that are out there. Mm. Um, similar, that's sort of what Revolver did for for pop music in in you know sixty five or sixty six five sixty six no whatever year it came 66. out sixty um, six okay sixty six sorry thank you for the so <laughs> I am not well versed in albums of the Beatles you know mm-hmm. I am familiar mm-hmm. with the music of the Beatles don't mm-hmm. worry yeah. but like I don't know what's on what album so so what what is this album? so Ke- Kevin and I can probably go track by track for you um, <laughs> uh, I have to think about it but uh, it's got Norwegian right. wood on it for example oh okay. that, that's rubber soul actually oh, that's rubber soul you're right Jeez. Yeah, oh, yeah. oh I lost uh, my I lost sorry, my Beatles sorry, cred that's right my bad I mean um, some would argue so, that so, yeah so the revolver was sort of some people argue was the first album Right. Like right. In, in other words, uh, before that, albums had just been collections of singles, even in the right. case of the Beatles. But Revolver holds together as a piece. So, yeah. 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 So, right. That, yeah. That's one thing. Right. Which, which again, right. You could probably, there's probably some analogy to, to wire stresses function there. Right. Um, and it also, right. Like one of the things, right. So it begins with this kind of weird countdown where it, I forget if it's John or George, but uh, sort of saying it, one, two, three, four, in, intro into uh, tax. It's man. a tax man. Yeah. Which is probably, yeah. it's, it's not my so favorite Beatles song, but it's certainly among the top four, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that one, right, already right there is like, it's a, it's a pop song about taxes, mm-hmm. which is already, so lyrically we're exploring different parts of mm-hmm. the possibility space than musicians were before. Yeah. Um, track two is Eleanor Rigby, which is mm-hmm. the only instrumentation is strings, mm-hmm. um, which again is something that you didn't really hear in, in pop. You know, Yesterday had brought in some strings that was sort mm-hmm. of innovative. Um, yep. Other bands had done similar things, but... But the idea of a song that's all strings, and then uh, I'm Only Sleeping is the third track, which mm-hmm. has this backwards guitar. They recorded the guitar and just played it backwards. Um, and then Yellow Submarine, which is like this weird Raffi song that somehow mm-hmm. snuck right. onto a Beatles mm-hmm. album. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and you know, For No One has this beautiful French horn solo. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's just sort of every, every track is, is sort of a weird, is, is drawn from sort of a distant corner of the space of possible popular music these kind of corners that uh that had not been explored previously right um anyway so so my recommendation is is think about the wire stress function while eating you know a giant sphere of blue cheese um and listening to tax man <laughs> great yeah i i strongly urge all of our listeners to go do that right now yeah yeah it would probably be if anyone does it, it'll probably be the first time that 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 set of activities has been done in conjunction yeah. Okay. And, but hopefully not the last. Hopefully not the last. That's right. right. Yeah. Right. 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 In fact, most experiences are like that, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> so we also like to let our guests plug things. You clearly have things to plug. Do you want to talk about those? I do. Yeah. 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 I'm, a, I'm a peddler of, of wares. Um, yeah. yeah. So right, the, probably the thing is, right. So my, my blog is Math of the Bad Drawings, and you're welcome to come come read that. I try to post funny, silly things there. Uh, and then my two books are, yeah, Math of the Bad Drawings, which is sort of a... Um, kind of explores how math pops up in lots of different walks of life, like, you know, in thinking about lottery tickets or thinking about um, the Death Star uh, is another chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Changes the Only Constant is my second book, and it's all about calculus, and it's sort of a calculus through stories. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, which that, that one just came out earlier this year, and I'm, and I'm quite proud of that one, so you should, you should check it out. Yeah, so I own both of them. I've only read Math with Bad Drawings. I've, I've been too busy so far to get cha- to get to Changes the Only Constant. But um... And there were there have been a slew of, like, books – 
the good pop, or I assume good because I haven't read most of them yet, <laughs> pop math books that have come out recently. Um, so yeah, I feel like my stack is growing. It's like a, yeah. a yeah, fall of calculus or something. Kind of a banner year. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, and you're exactly, yeah, calculus has been weirdly at the forefront, mm-hmm. right? Right. Steve Strogatz's um, Infinite Powers was like a New York Times bestseller. Right. Um, and then David Brassad and uh, and others who I'm blanking on right now have had one. There was another like another graphic like cartoon calculus that came out earlier mm-hmm. this year. Yep. Um, so yeah, apparently calculus is kind of having a moment and, and yeah. pop math in general. Well, and I just saw one about curves. It, it curves um, yeah, the mathematically right. curious. It's sitting on my desk. I, 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 yeah. have, I have many of these books that you've mentioned are sitting on my desk. <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah, great, great year for reading about calculus. But I think yeah. Ben would prefer that you, you know, start that reading with That's change right. is the only concept. right. I would say it's a very, it's a very frothy. It's very quick and lighthearted, and 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 should be yeah. If you, if, you know, you can you can use it as your as your appetizer to get into the uh, the, I don't know the cheesier balls of the the. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's yeah. highly non-trivial. I mean, you, you talk about really interesting stuff in these books. It's it's not like some frothy thing. I mean, it's it's lighthearted, but it's not simple. Yeah. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. The, the early draft of the book, I was I was doing pretty much a pretty faithful march through the AP calculus curriculum, mm. um, and then that draft wasn't really working. And I realized that part of what, what I wasn't doing that I should be doing was since I'm not teaching, you know, you how to execute calculus maneuvers. I'm not teaching you how to take derivatives. I can really talk about anything as long as I can explain the ideas. So we've got Weierstrass's function is in there, mm-hmm. um, and there's a little bit even on like Lebesgue integration and uh, other sort of weird you know, some stuff on differential equations crops up. So there's no since I'm not actually teaching a calculus course and I don't need to give tests on it. Um, I could just got to tell stories. Well, yeah, I hope people check that out. And uh, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, no, yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Thanks for listening to My Favorite Theorem, hosted by Kevin Knudsen and Evelyn Lee. The music you're hearing is a piece called Fractalia, a percussion quartet performed by four high school students from Gainesville, Florida. They are Blake Crawford, Gus Knudsen, Del Mitchell, and Bao Chan Nguyen. You can find more information about the mathematicians and theorems featured in this podcast, along with other delightful mathematical treats, at Kevin's website, kpkinnison.com, and Evelyn's blog, Roots of Unity, on the Scientific American Blog Network. We love to hear from our listeners, so please drop us a line at myfavoritetheorem at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Kevin's handle on Twitter is at NivikNazdunk, that's Kevin spelled backwards followed by Knudsen spelled backwards, and Evelyn's is at Evelyn J. Lamb. The show itself also has a Twitter feed. The handle is M-Y-F-A-V-E-T-H-M. That's at my favorite theorem. Join us next time to learn another fascinating piece of mathematics.